This is The Global Custodian. There's always a FinReg Angle podcast keeping you up to date with the latest developments in financial regulation. Hello and welcome to the second episode of There's Always a FinReg Angle, the podcast exploring the latest updates in financial regulation produced by Global Custodian. Uh, it turns out the pilot was successful and we've been commissioned for a whole season, so thanks everyone for the feedback. I'm John Watkins, I'm the editor of Global Custodian, and I'm joined virtually by a cast of FinReg experts today, Joe Parsons, Sean Tuffy, and Virginia O'Shea. Welcome back, everyone. Great to be here. Great to be here. I will start by asking the customary quarantine questions. How are you? How's working from home? And how many episodes through the Tiger King are you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have completed Tiger King, and uh, it is unbelievable. It's it's incredible that the two main trends that are going on is coronavirus and Tiger King. Couldn't believe it. (laughs) I haven't seen it yet. Is it really that good? Um, Oh, very good. Good is a a strong word. It's, yeah, unbelievable. (laughs) Really good way of putting that. It will will unlock a a whole new range of memes, FinReg memes for you. uh, Okay. References to Carol Baskin and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you will like it. If you know, you know. Sean, have you seen it? Actually, I haven't. Um, it's on. It's on the, the list of things to watch, but it, it, it appears to be all. It's all over my Twitter feed, so I actually am looking forward to catching it up. Yeah. Well, so forty percent of this uh, podcast hasn't seen it. That's that's going against the trend. Um, <laughs> So, Kais, we heard your voice there. Uh, how are you? Um, how's the feedback from the first podcast? And uh, how can everyone download this? Because I know we've, we've listed it on globalcustodian.com, but uh, can you get it elsewhere as well? So, yeah, yeah, we got a load of good feedback on uh, the podcast. A lot of people hitting up my uh, mailbox. But, yeah, now we are available pretty much everywhere. So, the main ones, we are available on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can find us on Spotify. And all you have to do is just type our name in, the name of the podcast. You can also find a link on the actual post on the webpage where the podcast will be published as well. You can also get us on the good old Google Assistant and Alexa. So you just have to have a, uh, yeah, just give it a little shout, uh, read out the podcast name, tell it to play us. And we're also on Google Play Music. And yeah, pretty much most of the platforms out there and, and i think it's always customary to say to people uh yeah give us feedback in in written form but you so you can also hit that five star button um or the one star button and yeah we'll read back we'll read out all feedback positive negative that'll be fun to do next show so do give us a rating we'll take suggestions as well <laughs> just add that in <laughs> suggestions requests song requests oh god i'm not singing <laughs> you guys can do that no one's singing the Cybus song, are they? Oh, God. God forbid. <laughs> yeah. I might belt out some Russ Abbott or something. Oh, yes, for anyone that didn't hear this week, the annual Cybus conference was cancelled. But uh, out of that bad news um, did come something good. We uh, uncovered the Cybos song from 2015, Joe, was it? Yeah, from the Singapore, <laughs> it's the Singapore uh, conference, yeah. And it's, um, it's a challenge of how far through you can get that get through that song before just tapping out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Test of endurance. (laughs) This is the show rundown. 
let's um let's start by just having a bit of a wrap up of, of what's happened in the last week so we recorded the podcast a week ago but in these fast moving times there's a there's a lot of changes occurring so joe do you want to start off by just uh, outlining some of the the regulatory updates we've had in the last week yeah of course cool. so um starting one from earlier this week we had a uh, a group of trade associations um right to the European Commission to ask for a 12-month delay to the um, Shareholders' Right Directive, the second one, so SRD2, um, hoping to postpone that for it by a year to September 2021 because of the impacts of the coronavirus and um, the fact that many sort of AGMs are being sort of postponed and, and repurpose of, of IT personnel towards more critical activity. So, um, you know, what we've seen at the moment is that when these associations send a letter into the European Commission asking for a uh, delay, they normally get it. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see whether that will actually happen again for SRD2. Um, yeah, that lobby has worked pretty well so far, isn't it? When when they ask, they seem to get just a couple of weeks later. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then we had some, uh, some other developments um, uh, from a sort of uncleared margin rule side. So... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, the, the unclear margin rules for the, for the last two phases were delayed. But we had some interesting stats uh, from the International Securities and Derivatives Association about how much collateral has been exchanged um, since the, the first phase came into force uh, in, in 2017. Um, and last year, the, the, sort of the 20 biggest banks, the 20 biggest swaps dealers exchanged around a trillion dollars of collateral um, for non-clear derivatives, which is quite amazing, and and considering the volatility that we had um, last month, we we'll probably see um, you know a huge spike in in margin uh, exchanges and margin calls for both cleared and non-clear derivatives. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what the stats come out from that. Uh, we also had a couple. We had a CSDR license as well being uh, authorized to the to Clearstream's Luxembourg CSD. So. Uh, you know, with everything that's going on, those CSDR licenses are still uh, going forth. Um, and lastly, uh, just today or, or yesterday, um, the short selling ban has been extended across Europe. So there are still restrictions to short selling certain securities in Austria, Belgium, France, Greece, and Spain. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, Virginia. What do you think? What did you make of uh, of that extension? Um, I mean, in terms of the short selling ban, it's it seems somewhat nonsensical, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of the excuses for introducing um, the bans relate to things like fake news, and we're we're always combating fake. News. I mean, I hate to use that term, obviously, um, but uh, I think we always have a problem with that in the markets. And you know, short selling is there for a reason. Um, market activity should be, you know, supported as as normal, really. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some volatility, but I think banning short selling, even the IMF um, came out and said, you know, revise, strongly revise your policies on short selling. It's it's actually, um, or banning short selling is, is, is probably dangerous for your local markets. So I, I don't really understand why they've extended them. I mean, I'm, I understand the logic behind it, but I think it's a flawed logic. Do you agree, Sean? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because obviously the FCA has come out but um, not looking to do short selling restrictions. And I think it's one of those things that everyone intellectually understands that short selling restrictions probably don't accomplish 
what the policymakers want them to do, but it's sort of a psychological crush, but crutch rather, uh, certainly in Europe. So I, I think everyone agrees with short selling bans aren't going to accomplish much, but um, I think we can probably expect ESMA to keep rolling them forward for a while um, for no other reason except for the optics of it, I think. It does seem daft. I mean, if it's national national protectionism to some degree, I guess it's it's that view of of uh, of banning it and, and not thinking about the cross border aspects as well, which is 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 another thing. Um, seems seems ridiculous to me. But uh, yeah, I mean, you, the, something you touched on earlier, though. I mean, thinking about SRD two, that also annoyed me. That that postponement because <laughs> I have to get my oar in on that that front. Um, what annoyed me more particularly is is the fact that you know the shareholder the the, the area around issuers and issuer communication is in the dark ages, in the veritable dark ages still. I mean, AGM should be able to take place online. I mean, there's technology out there to be able to do all this stuff. The London Stock Exchange didn't delay theirs. They actually just flipped it onto online uh, means. You can, you can do proxy voting. You can do shareholder voting online as well. I mean, there's plenty of tools out there. There's new tools being created every day as well. Um, new startups in that space so really the excuse behind it does seem somewhat what's the word pathetic <laughs> this may be strong but um, <laughs> you think about some of these large corporations and the fact that they still do a lot of things manually and in person it just doesn't doesn't make sense to me at all yeah I think there's certainly a little element of never let a good crisis go to waste um, and some and a lot of trade associations looking to uh who would have liked delays anyway, absent the COVID, uh, using it as cover. Um, and I actually think longer term, though, Virginia, to your point, that the, the COVID experience will probably push a lot of this modernization around AGMs and everything else into the digital age, um, because I think regulators will see uh, groups use, utilizing more online and digital tools um, and probably push for that when we get to the other side of this. I mean, there's, there's so many little cottage industries across the, you know, across um, every firm. You think about corporate actions, processing and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, a lot of it's very manual still um, and ridiculously so. So certainly I think that's where we have to focus our efforts in, in future. If we want to modernize stuff, we really should look at some of these backwater areas um, and think about how how much manual effort, how much risk goes into those spaces. Because up until this point, I don't think regulators have really noticed them. Um, but this is perfectly highlighting it. We shouldn't let the crisis go to waste. You're right. Was there any other d- d- delays or news stories this week from from the regulatory uh, FinReg world? Yeah, I think a couple of one trend we've seen. We've seen both IOSCO and the FSB sort of publicly come out and say they're going to reorient their. <clears throat> their work programs for this year and sort of drop what I would call non-essential issues and focus on issues uh, related to COVID-19, the COVID-19 outbreak. Um, and in both cases, IOSCO and FSB has said that sort of includes continuing to look at asset managers and asset management and their role in the financial system. Um, and if there's a, a need for sort of further regulation in that area. So far, there hasn't and really any obvious um, weak spots, but I think it's interesting to note that 
both those uh, sort of global regulators have taken that approach. I mean, there's quite a few national regulators have been looking at, at buy side as a potentially systemically risky um, community for a long time, right? And, and I think that's that's one thing that we, we should be wary of because a bank, a bank is not an asset manager and and, the, and vice versa. You know, this is, this is the way they operate and, and how they operate and the risks posed in them are very different. Um, so I, I'm just wary of, of, you know, regulators flinging themselves wholesale into this area because um, it could be quite dangerous. Oh, yeah, no, 100%. And I think I think there has, as you say, been a long smoldering um, debate about the potential systemic risk of asset managers. Um, and I think this the COVID issue isn't going to put any of that to bed. Um, and I imagine that it will be sort of a, it will probably move farther up the priority chain for a number of regulators to look at. So it's definitely something we should be on alert for. And is, do we have any uh, updates from regu- any regulate, uh, regulators in Asia? Uh, because I did see that uh, the, the regulator in Singapore announced a series of, of, of delays. I think one of them was the, the report, sort of reporting requirements. Um, could, could, could anyone provide some updates uh, from what they've seen in Asia? Yeah, I mean, I think it's basically the same thing we've seen um, sort of globally. So you've seen regulators in Hong Kong and Singapore and Australia all sort of put out forbearance around uh, regulatory reporting um, and deadlines, et cetera. So I think everyone's sort of playing, you know, pulling from the same playbook, if you will, um, in terms of what they're going, allowing to sort of give forbearance on. Okay, good. Well, that, that's, that seems like all the news uh, updates for now. Um, so we, we got pretty deep, pretty quick there. Let's, um, before we get on to some of the, <laughs> The big uh, overarching themes that, that we're going to really dive into today. Um, obviously, also in the news right now, there's lots of, uh, I don't know how to explain it, I guess social media crazies going around. So you've got the, the what did you look like at 20 uh, pictures being posted up, which is uh, something that doesn't lend itself very well to a podcast, unfortunately. But I'm sure if you log on to everyone's uh, Twitter profiles, you can see some, uh, some great pictures of, of everyone. Uh, in, is it 20 or in their 20s? I think it's, it's 20. 20, yeah, I believe. Yeah. 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 Right on 20. Yeah. At least that's what I did. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, the unfortunate fine. thing with being in, in Gen X is that none of the, well, I suppose the fortunate and unfortunate things is, is that we don't really have that many photos from that period. There were no digital cameras or anything like that. So <laughs> I've had to scan my photo in um, that my father took because I didn't actually actively want to be in front of a camera ever. Uh, from the age of, of about I don't know ten up until about twenty, so or even even after that. <laughs> I mean, Sean, Sean, your one is is quite special. You look like you're about to start a uh, a garage grunge band. Something, something yeah, out of Nevada. Well, you know, the nineties were a wonderful time. <laughs> <laughs> they were indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so we can't. So we can't uh, uh, publish the, the photos on the podcast. But another craze is um, which of these houses would you rather be quarantined in? Uh, I hope everyone's seen these. So we've decided to put a slight Finreg angle on it uh, and come up with four houses, uh, each of which is, is hosted by a regulator. And I would like to ask all of you on the podcast today, which of these houses you would rather be quarantined in? Now, you have to bear with me while I read them out. And it's important to remember that when I say the regulator, you have to consider that their entire staff will be in this house. Okay, so it's not just one person or the head off. So um, house one, is the SEC, Cardi B, 
a tiger and a COVID-19 expert. Now there's some some um, some bonuses in there with, with the COVID-19 expert to help you get through this, but there is also a live tiger from the wild. So house two is the CFTC, Michelle Obama, a family of small mice and a personal trainer. House three, Esma, Jose Mourinho, a house cat and a hologram of Elvis. And finally, House 4, uh, the uh, MAS, the Singapore regulator, Justin Bieber, a friendly dog, and a professional cake maker. So um, I hope you all can remember those houses. Um, would you like to tell me which of these houses would you like to be quarantined with and why? I mean, I'll start. I mean, House 3, definitely not, because, I mean, living in the house of Esma, you get you get nothing done at the weekend. They'll give you a load of work to do sort of Friday <laughs> about six o'clock and then oh your, your weekend's ruined. Uh and Jose Mourinho, well I'm a Chelsea fan, so uh, he's a traitor. Okay. Uh I'll have to go with um house two because uh, the CFTC uh they 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 they're quite flexible. Um be Michelle Obama, second most powerful woman in the world. Uh Family of mice, they won't really bother me that much. Personal trainer, well, you know me, I like my Zumba. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd have to go uh, house two uh, as well. I think uh, CFTC is one of my, my favorite regulators out there, to be honest. So I think I wouldn't mind spending some time with them. Um, and, you know, Michelle Obama certainly would be a good company. And uh, quite honestly, I could use a personal trainer. So it seems like a good setup. <laughs> and you can tolerate the family of small mice. That's good to know. <laughs> So I, I'm I'm not a fan of living with a, a family of mice, and I'm probably not going to make use of a personal trainer. Though I do like the CFTC. I preferred. I mean, obviously, if Bart Chilton was still with us, I would have picked that house because um, obviously I think he would be great fun. He would have been great fun to to hang out with. Um, and Giancarlo, I guess, would would have also been quite fun before he left. But I think in terms of the the house I might pick, even though there's just Justin Bieber in it, I think I could lock him in a cupboard. Oh. I'd probably okay. go for the house. I, th- I think me and the staff of the Monetary Authority of Singapore could lock him in a cupboard and, and eat the cake that the cake maker's producing and play with the dog. So I am yeah. going to go with option four. Fantastic. Nice range of answers. Go on, Kais, producer Kais, what uh, watch house. Yeah, I feel like everyone's missing out on house one. That seems where the parties are. I mean, you've got a tiger. Watch Tiger King with a tiger. How, how better can it get? And then you've got Cardi B, former stripper, singer, and now political figure. So, yeah, and COVID-19 expert. I mean, it's all there. And then obviously the sec. Um, yeah, I think that's the party house. I think that's where you're going to have uh, the good quarantine time. But, um, yeah, each to her own. Yeah, can I say I agree? I'm going to go with house one. I feel like me, Cardi B, um, the SEC, and the Tiger could really do some great TikTok videos during this time. Um, and really that's, that's what we're going through yes. it. So, okay, a good a good range of answers there. Um, and yeah, interesting that um, Joe, your first worry was about Jose Mourinho and not living with a, a live tiger. So, yeah. same thing. And it, yeah, exactly. It gives us an insight into your, <laughs> into your views and him. So let's get back to uh, the Finrig uh, serious stuff. Um, last week we we got through a lot of topics. We're going to try not to cover uh, anything. Um, that, that we spoke about last week. But I think um, the first thing I want to talk about is kind of the industry engagement um, from the regulators. There was a lot of talk in, in previous years about uh, 
sandboxes and a regtech tracking. Uh, Virginia, I want to ask you, um, you know, during this time, can we discuss the, the engagement for these regulators? Are these, are these sorry, initiatives uh, still a priority? Um, and, and do you feel like they're effective? I know there's some varying range of views uh, on, on these kind of things. I mean, I think a lot of the, the work that the FCA and the Monetary Authority of Singapore have done in terms of sandboxing has been interesting. They've certainly got their hands dirty with, with, with working with fintechs and understanding. And they've, they've increased their understanding of how fintechs work and how that aspect works, how regtech can potentially um, evolve. I think those are the good things about these, these initiatives. Certainly, I think that's, that's helpful and handy when the regulator has a better understanding of technology. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, you're seeing the C CFTC uh, a couple of years ago, I want to say, maybe it was last year, I can't remember, I'm losing track at this point. I think March seemed like a year. So um, I, I saw them uh, trying to set up a sandbox, but unfortunately in the US, it's quite hard to directly engage. There's a lot of um, legal issues with directly engaging with fintechs, so they can't actually do it the same way that other regulators can. But I think there's a lot of interest and understanding across the regulatory community now about engaging with regtechs and fintechs and trying to get um, more clued up on how these areas can actually help the industry. And I think that can only be good in terms of drafting regulation and especially future regulation to try and compel some of some of the changes in areas where, as I say, backwaters where people just don't really um, have the appetite to invest. So I think that's great. Um, I see where the scepticism comes in from the regulator, well, from, from the industry's point of view about, you know, how much can we trust the regulators? Are they, you know, are they looking at us in a certain light and, and are they taking notes behind our backs about what we're doing and, and trying to, to sort of, um, you know, I guess maybe future regulation might not be so friendly. Um, but I, do, I don't think we've seen any evidence of that yet, but I can certainly understand why the industry is, is wary to engage directly. And I certainly see on, on the more on the financial institution front, there's been less engagement than on the, the technology vendor side. So um, I think it's a good thing, but again, not enough regulators have done it yet. So I, I don't know if, whether Sean agrees with me on that front, but I think it's an interesting thing for them to do. And I think it's worthwhile, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I think my default... The setting is a little more cynical than it probably should be going to growing up as a Gen X kid of the 90s. But I think I think Virginia, you make a good point about it's good that regulators have been trying have sort of gotten on their hood and understand how the technology works a little better. I've always remained, I always have been a little skeptical of this idea of lowering uh, regulatory bars for fintech companies, um, which is part of the aspect of the, the sandbox because what you typically see is when fintech firms come in with grand plans of disrupting uh, financial services, they usually run headlong into a raft of regulations that are designed to sort of protect investors. Um, and they're not typically used to that level of regulatory scrutiny. So but there's a, a challenge or disconnect there um, as it, it sort of comes to uh, the, the functioning of sandboxes. And I think the biggest challenge you really hit on there is sort of, it's really hard to do this on a cross-border basis, which most of these fintechs are looking to do um, just to the nature of different regulatory regimes. Um, so I think it, I think there remain some real challenges to sort of the concept, but I mean, it is at one level good that regulators are looking in understanding how technology could potentially, potentially impact uh, the areas at which they regulate. Something that I picked up 
the the end of last week uh, was we've seen a lot of uh, comparisons with the fallout of uh, of this sort of the coronavirus pandemic and comparing it with the the, the experience of the two thousand eight financial crisis um, and, and and we saw I think there was a, a an article uh, on, from the from the uh, FT uh, last week where they spoke to um, uh, the, the the US regulator and and the, the, the they've actually praised uh, the market resilience uh, of how they've dealt with the, the extreme volatility um, in in the markets and, and and how sort of firms have dealt with that. So, you know, my question maybe maybe to Sean, uh, what what do you make of this comparison between what we're seeing at the moment and with the fallout of two thousand eight? Do do you think that the industry uh, has been able to deal with the crisis better than than the fallout of of eight because the stress tests that that they've been uh, forced you know, forced to comply with and uh, the, the the capital requirements as well. What what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are a couple aspects to it. I think overall, certainly the post uh, financial crisis regulatory framework that was put in um, has certainly helped and has withstood, um, a lot of the challenges we've seen in the last month or so. Um, and I think to everyone's relief, I would say that there hasn't been any sort of glaring issues, um, you know, pockets of turbulence for sure, but nothing that looks like it's going to require root and branch reform on the other side of this. Now, I think it's also worth pointing out that one of the big differences between what we're dealing with today and what we dealt with in zero eight is sort of, uh, in 08, the, the trouble sort of was, was from inside the house, right? So it was a financial crisis that spilled over um, to become an economic issue, as opposed to this being an economic issue that's stressing the uh, financial system. So I think the, the point of origin is different, um, which is one of the reasons the fallout has been uh, less dramatic from a sort of... And, and do you think we would see any uh, changes from the, po- from the sort of a post-trade perspective from this, uh, you know, once sort of the the lockdowns become you know eased, and uh, would there be sort of any more any new standards? Do you think that 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 could be introduced to uh, help from a sort of a business continuity perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think from the in the post trade space, I think, and we probably touched upon this um, last time. I think what you we actually probably will see. Um, is <clears throat> policymakers look at the uncleared margin rules and the final threshold and seriously consider moving, uh, sort of eliminating phase six, if you will, and moving the final uh, threshold up a little bit to about $100 billion, um, in uncleared derivatives, sort of recognizing the impact, um, all having all this collateral moving around. And I think you'll also see regulators, uh, the European policymakers, reconsider CSDR mandatory buy-in um, and look for potentially delay or look at that uh, in the context of how it could impact market liquidity. So I think, I don't think any of the issues right now that are happening point to, you know, the need for a CSDR 2, if you will, or any of that. I think it's just sort of tweaking existing rule sets. I don't know. I mean, in, in terms of other things that they, they are being drawn attention to, I mean, obviously the paper aspect I touched upon last time we were talking, um, you know, the, the fact that there's still a lot of paper processing going on um, it's perfectly highlighted that, though, I, as I said, Hurricane Sandy highlighted that and nothing happened about it in the US. So, 
Um, do we think that you know the, the changes will be dramatic enough? You know, will will we see enough force for change? That's what I I question. Sometimes we have very short memories sometimes when it comes to these things, and you know, things that were on the radar tend to drop off fairly quickly, unfortunately. So people have very short term memories. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that some things will change, uh, and I'm I'm hoping this <laughs> this will compel some of the regulators to move forward with with um, very important reforms in reducing paper processes and manual processes. But, you know, you never know. Um, once the market bounces back, uh, people just tend to, to forget about stuff and, and move on to other, other topics, sadly. So uh, I, don't want, I don't want to sound cynical on that, but it, that often does happen. So we'll see. No, yeah. I mean, I think that's actually a really good point, especially the, the account opening and sort of dividend processing, which is rife with sort of all sorts of manual touch points um, that have been eased at the moment, but, you know, it's very easy to sort of revert reversion to mean and go back to what, you know, um, and unfortunately, you know, it's not a glamorous or sexy topic. And if nothing's really broken, um, it's often hard to get regulators to sort of make the, the changes that could help the industry. Sure. I, I think, the, the crisis has also highlighted some negative. Th- I mean, I, if I'm going to think of some from the cultural side of things, because I often look at, I, I, I sit here like a psychologist looking at this stuff sometimes. I, I think it's it's highlighted some of the negative um, bank cultural aspects that some, you know, some individuals are feeling compelled to go back into offices when they don't feel safe doing so. Um, a lot of the things that we, you know, we criticise the industry for. Um, post 2008 didn't really change in terms of behaviors and culture. Um, I hope that we'll start thinking about the future and we think about ESG, we think about, you know, the social aspects um, that are becoming so important to investors. Hopefully we'll start thinking about and and green issues as well. Um, I I want to see more of a wholesale reform of culture and governance and things like that happening in the banking industry. Uh, And I don't think we've come anywhere near where we need to go on that front. Sadly, uh, one, one thing I would praise the banks as well is, is that, that many have actually freezed their sort of job cuts, haven't they? they many of the top uh, investment banks have, have postponed uh, sort of large scale job cuts and uh, some are actually continuing to bring on uh, interns and, and, and graduates as well. So it's probably the one time you can actually tip your hat to the banks. Yeah, it's probably helped by the uh, ability to, to furlough instead of uh, cut in some cases <laughs> as well. But no, I think you're right, Joe. It's, uh, I mean, a, a lot of the people we've been speaking to have said, you know, this is our chance to shine. This is our chance to step up. Certainly, we're talking about custody banks and, and outsourcing providers. They say, yeah, we're um, we're the people you should be able to rely on and should um, come through for you in times of market stress as well. And I think the ESG stuff is interesting, Virginia. I think you could take a couple of angles on it. My, my first thought was that is this something that falls by the wayside, why people focus on keeping the lights on and their core competencies. But uh, yeah, it's been proven before the ESG strategies in investments uh, you know, yields higher returns. So that's one positive. And the second one is that you know, does this whole crisis show kind of how fragile the world is and, and how important it is that we, we take care of it? And, that might spur kind of more focus on ESG in the future. Hopefully. I mean, that's the hope. I was just going to say from a regulatory perspective, the ESG work that uh, the commission and ESMA is doing is one of the only things that's slowing down, to be honest. And it's probably a topic for another day, but I think that is definitely uh, something at a policy level that's going to keep being driven uh, pretty hard. There was a story that came out today that, um, 
with, with uh, around Brexit, which is you know, a little bit surprising, a little bit refreshing. Um, but the, 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 there was a story that the UK would refuse any EU offer to extend the Brexit transition, uh, despite you know, everything that's going on. So it's still with, with the with the coronavirus, they're still not postponing the inevitable Brexit and banks and, and, and uh, financial services firms will still have to continue to make those preparations regardless that they're all work from home. It's complete madness, that, isn't it? I mean, <clears throat> not to state the obvious, but <laughs> you think about other things that are being postponed in terms of regulation. Um, surely this is something that we really have to be preparing for. Um, and there's a lot of unknowns that we, we kind of have to be sort of hedging our bets for that we, we, we shouldn't we shouldn't be forced into considering. I have, I have several friends that work in, in the civil service, let's say, I'm not going to say which bits, but um, they're being forced to work ridiculous hours to divide their time between COVID-19 and Brexit. Um, and if it's putting pressure on them, it's going to put pressure on everybody. So it, it does seem sort of daft to do that. Um, it, it seems sort of cutting your nose off to spite your face for a political point. But then isn't most thing, aren't most things that happen in the, in, uh, in the world on that, on that front, sadly. But uh, I really wish they'd see sense on that front because it is quite tough for the industry and for in, indeed the government and their civil servants to have to deal with all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, it's also extremely on brand at the moment, but I mean, I think it's sort of, I think if you were to talk to any asset manager group, you know, everyone knows existentially there's a second, you know, another shooter drop with Brexit. But right now, no one has any time to focus on that. So I think, you know, when we get to the summer, if the trajectory still looks like heading for, you know, what we could call the second Brexit cliff edge, right? I think it will sharpen focus, but it's honestly less thing anyone, anybody wants to deal with at the moment. And don't forget, it'll cause another toilet roll panic. <laughs> <laughs> which we all have to worry about yeah amazing how quickly it drops off the radar uh brexit but joe as you said some some updates coming in uh as as we go through this it's not something that's that's going away um last episode we spoke quite a lot about uh ops teams in, in depth um today i just want to go over a bit of uh the, the compliance teams and, and compliance culture at the moment and ask and what's, what it's like to work in, in those departments right now. Has anyone got any uh, views on that to begin with? So I think the uh, the compliance functions of a lot of firms that obviously come into, as they do in times like this, come into sort of light, um, sort of important parts of the, the machinery. And I think right now the challenge of, a, you know, in a compliance department is when you're dealing with some sort of mass work from home, um, ensuring continued compliance remotely poses challenges and obviously regulators have acknowledged this um, in sort of allowing certain um, certain exemptive relief um, from aspects of the rules but I think it puts an extra challenge and burden on compliance teams to be monitoring this sort of mass remote system and I think what comes out of it will be interesting in terms of it, what lessons are learned um, terms of how to do that on a, a go forward basis if we think about compliance teams i speak to a lot of compliance teams as part of my job um talking about reg tech and things like that and adoption um you get two different sort of types of organization um you have the the, the organizations that take compliance very seriously and then there's those that say they're taking it seriously but don't take it as seriously as as they should um 
and you have a lot of cultural problems with regards to the latter. Um, and, and compliance teams tend to feel like they're being bullied by the management and caught between a rock and a hard place because ultimately they're responsible for the the, the, the industry, um, you know, meeting the industry standards and not just box ticking. Uh, so their heads roll when anything goes wrong. So I'd say there's a lot of there's the, the the former group. There's not that many of them. Let me let me be perfectly honest. Sadly, um, not everybody takes compliance as seriously as they should at, at all levels of, of an organisation. Um, you may have a great compliance team and they may keep you out of trouble, but if you're not overall having all of your staff understanding their obligations, then you have some problems. Uh, I'd say when it comes to to looking at the industry at the moment. Um, these guys are faced with so many gray areas. They, they have gray areas to deal with on a day-to-day basis. But um, now there are even more gray areas as to, you know, exactly how much can we get away with and, and blame COVID-19, you know, blame the circumstances we're under um, when the regulators decide to come and talk to us in a few months' time, maybe next year, and ask us about why we took certain actions. Um, as an organisation, that that is a very dangerous thing to be, you know, having grey areas about. So there's a, there's a lot of things that I, I think that that probably need to have more best practices, more discussion uh, across the industry. But unfortunately, when it comes to compliance, people don't really like to air their dirty laundry, so they don't talk about these things in public forums, um, and sometimes they don't even talk to each other um, because they're worried about what they're sharing with, you know, competitors or peers. So. It, it's it's a tough one with with regards to compliance because unless you've got sort of clear guidelines as to what you should be doing, you are taking guesses, you're you're taking risks, and it's your reputation and your head um, that that may roll at the end of it. So it's the last week standing up for the ops teams, and this week for for the compliance guys, you're uh, fighting for. The I was guys. like I was like the underdogs. Come on, <laughs> they're never popular. <laughs> It's time to round things off. Okay, thanks for all those those thoughts, and we've explored a lot of topics and, and latest news today. So, uh, some some great uh, insights there from Joe, Sean, and Virginie. Uh, just before we wrap things up, uh, remind you to subscribe and then give us feedback, and also give you all a chance on the podcast to, to uh, fire out any plugs at this point. Sean, where can we find your wonderful content? Yes, uh, thanks again. Uh, please check out. City Securities Services Insights at City Velocity slash Insights for uh, all of our latest thinking. Brilliant. And Virginia? Yep. You can catch me on Twitter at Virginie O'Shea. Good. And John, I've got, a, uh, I've got a couple of plugs as well, if you don't mind. Uh, so um, Global Sodium will be hosting um, two webinars um, in the coming weeks. Uh, the first one, which will be on April the 30th, and we are partnering with Deutsche Bank for a one-hour webinar where we'll be talking about the post-trade decade. Um, so that is a that is an all-star panel. Uh, we've got speakers from BNY Mellon, uh, Simcorp and Deutsche Bank, and we're going to be talking about some of the disruptive factors that are shaping the post-trade industry. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised that the uh, coronavirus topic will be uh, widely talked about part in that, in that webcast. Um, and then also on the 7th of May, We are also partnering with Apex Group to bring a 45-minute webcast exploring the private funds law in the Cayman Islands. And we'll be talking about how Cayman domiciled private funds and fund managers can prepare for that regulation. 
Wonderful. Thanks, Joe. And good to hear Global Custodians moving with the times and the situation and, and putting out webinars and, and podcasts. I mean, in, in this environment, you can listen to them eating your breakfast or your lunch or, or even in the shower. Um, there, there's all these opportunities <laughs> for this kind of content now. So do tune into those webinars wherever you are and whatever you are doing. But for now, uh, thanks for listening to the, this week's podcast. We'll be back again next week. Um, and if you have any feedback, uh, do let us know. But thanks again, everyone. You were listening to There's Always a Fimreg Angle podcast with Global Custodian. 